Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. About 2002 or three, I can't remember exactly the year, we were working on a lot of our um, <clears throat> just internal documents and strategy and structure for the church, and we would write our mission uh, statement a lot. We would write uh, just a lot of the initiatives and things that we were going to be uh, setting ourselves up to do as a church. And one of our board members, uh, who's now one of our pastors, Rick Schaefer, is a good friend of mine. Uh, as he would write and uh, participate in the process before, like we would say, you know, our mission is to reach people and help them walk with God, and you know, we're going to be doing it. So we'd list our initiatives, and he would write, uh, like literally on everything he printed or, or I would, would write and put forward, he would say, because he is worthy, because Jesus is worthy, um, we'll reach people and help them walk with God. Because Jesus is worthy, we're going to do this. Because Jesus is worthy, we're going to do that. And I remember, just, I remember seeing this, and I was a young pastor back then, I'm still a young pastor, just so you know. But um, uh, I, I remember seeing those words and kind of thinking in my head, he must see something I don't see. Because I didn't think like that. And it wasn't that I didn't believe Jesus was worthy or didn't think Jesus was worthy. I didn't have a frame to consider how his worth affected my life. So to think that we're going to exercise strategy or participate in this world or lead our organization with all this vision of how we're going to move things forward to frame it with these three words, because Jesus is worthy, four words, because Jesus is worthy. To frame it like that helped me, at least, and again, it started, it wasn't like instant. It's taken, you know, 15 years to sort of begin to put some handles around this and to get a frame of reference to start to see that. This song uh, that we just sang has been on repeat uh, in my playlist for uh, the last probably three years. Uh, and it was really timely moving into the pandemic to consider, you know, do you see a world that's broken and just acknowledge it? Do you, do you, do you, is all creation groaning, right? All these things. Do you, do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Like, do you know that? Do you have a a category, a, a faith, a way of seeing the world that declares that and believes that and trusts that. You have a vision for God's work in a way that actually compels you to continue, to stay faithful, to move into this world with faithfulness and with sanity and bringing something more beautiful than what people expect to see. So it's all of these things that begin to, to wrestle in my head. And I think one of the things that says, do you, do you long to see something different? And it just kind of gave me permission to, to dream and to think about this. You know, this is the last Sunday. Tomorrow is January 31st. Tomorrow is the last day of Mush Month. Did y'all know this, right? If you've been around since the beginning, we, I've taken Mush Month very, very seriously. Um, Mush Month was designed for me. It was, the picture, uh, if you remember, um, was of, of one brick kind of coming to rest on top of another row of bricks. And when that happens, the mortar between them gets mushed out. And so they take the mortar and they scrape it off and they throw it back in the bucket to be used at a later date. So I wanted to take January, sort of scrape it off, put it back in the bucket to be used. And it, it allows the, the one thing to settle on top of the next. And what I needed particularly is I needed to have some space where I wasn't pushed forward, which I'm usually, usually I didn't, I didn't have a, a footing for 2022 like I wanted. So I just took some time and declared mush month. 
and um, I wanted there to be a settling. And in that, in that settling, I needed for some space for 2022 to settle into place on top of 2021. I feel like that's what's happened. So I've used this as, as to keep from rushing forward and to kind of prepare myself and, um, and to pick my word. And so I've done the personal retreat. I hope that you have. Uh, and I've picked my word. For those of you who are new, um, you know, we pick words around here. We've talked about that a lot. Um, we have some cool stickers, and I've picked my word. And in fact, when I do this, I spend a, a pretty good bit of time going through it. And so my word for uh, 2022 is imagination. Uh, maybe I'm watching too much Disney. I'll concede that. Um, but I list all of my words that I've picked since 2007. This is my 15th word that I've picked. And on my planner that I have, and it's, it's uh, pen and paper. I have digital stuff, but I use pen and paper, and it's blank. And I fill it in every week, and it forces me to write my word at the top of my page every single week of the year. And I miss a couple of weeks here and there because I'm on vacation, and I'll, I'll use it in different ways. But for the most part, that is a, every three months I get a new one, and, and I use it in this way in these seasons, and I write my word. And the reason is because when I'm putting my calendar down, and I'm putting all the things that I've got on my list down, and I'm looking at all the things I'm thinking about, I always see it through the lens of that word, of what I hope and believe God is doing in my life. Last year, my word was detail. It helped me with a lot of things uh, to really appreciate some things that I had overlooked uh, just due to the pace of my life. I don't know if you've ever had that happen, where the pace of your life just sort of eliminates your capacity to pay attention to things uh, the way they might warrant or it might value them. So that helped me in that. And then this year is imagination. And the reason is, and imagination literally means this. And, and I, my wife and I were talking, she said, well, I like imagine better, which I do too, actually. But imagine is, is an action. I didn't want an action word. I wanted something that settles. And imagination is a thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing, something I can hold on to. And it, and it literally means so I write it down. I write the definition down. I go through. And it says that it's a, it's a faculty uh, for forming new ideas, which all of our staff probably are going, oh, gosh, he does not need any new ideas. But it's, it's not that. It's the faculty for forming new ideas or concepts that are not present to the senses, they're not readily available to what you taste and touch. It's something else. And the reason for this is because so I'm 51 years old. I know some of you are younger than me and some of you are older than me. What I found happens to me is that the older I get or the longer I do something, and it can be anything. You can be five years into a job or 10 years into a job, or you can be you know, really, really young and have been doing something or pursuing something for a long period of time. It gets etched in your brain in a particular way. And then anything that looks different than what you already know feels like a threat to it. And what happens is you get harder and harder and harder and hardened in your positions. And what we believe, what I hope we believe about God and his work is that there's so much more to see. And if you've been walking with God for 10 or 15 or 20 years, and you think you've already got it figured out, what you're going to do is you're going to hear everything and you're going to read the Bible and you're going to pursue him and you're going to try to fit it into what you already know. And so when I read the scriptures, right, 1 Corinthians, this is my verse, chapter 2, it says that, that no ear has heard, no eye has seen, and no mind has imagined what the Lord has in store for those who love him. And a lot of us, if we're really honest, we have imagined what the Lord has in store for us because he is, this is the life that we want, this is what we're imagining, and then we try to use him to get it. And so what I wanted is a way to sort of, Lord, can you show me 
And let me imagine things, not let me be stuck by what I have already experienced and what I already know. And instead, give me vision, help me to see an imagination that's beyond what I sense. And so that's my word. And the great thing about it is I get to inflict it on all of y'all. How about that? So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. The premise of this series, as we wrap it up today, it's broke, is that we have to find, I think, we have to find a way to live with a sense of peace. Even if the world doesn't become less broken. Um, because it's not. It just, it's, it's not likely to become less broken. And that means we have to have a way to deal with it. We have to have a way to navigate. We've spent the last few weeks talking about this. And today when we talk about vision... I believe all of us have a vision for our lives, a vision for what we want our lives to be, how we want our lives to work. But I want to take and I want to give us another frame of reference, and I want you to consider your vision for the gospel and its implications on your life. And as soon as I write this word, you have a picture. You have some, some vocabulary comes to mind. For some of you, right, it's a dude in a suit with slick back hair, Turn or burn, baby, right? You have a picture in your head of what this looks like. For others of you, it's like, ah, you know, Jesus is cool, and he's kind of my homeboy, here's my friend, and we just want to be nice and kind to each other, and you have a view or a picture of the gospel. And what I want is for us to have a vision of the gospel that is compelling, that causes you to get up in the morning. Years ago, um, I made some notes trying to understand what spiritual maturity is because everybody has, again, when you think about the gospel, a vision for the gospel, a vision for your life as someone who believes and trusts the gospel, we talk about maturity or spiritual maturity, and all of us have sort of pictures in our head that we've inherited about what those things are. I actually sat down and I tried to say, "What what what do I mean when I talk about spiritual maturity? What does it mean to me? Growing up, what it meant is you knew where the book of Obadiah was. Right, if you're like, I'm doing my quiet time at Obadiah, I was like, ooh, he must be a really mature Christian. So I didn't know Obadiah, Obadiah was in the Bible. It is. And it's, it's not that. There are a lot of people who know a lot of things about the Bible and God who have no foundation to a faith that compels them and a vision that moves them to become. And, and so it, it can happen, and it can happen to all of us. It can happen to all of us. And so I sat down and I made a list, and the three sort of things that I use are stability, gratitude, and generosity. We've done a whole series on this, stability, gratitude, and generosity. If you want to test your spiritual maturity, you just look at those three things, right? The way you gauge maturity, when something happens to you and you go, oh my gosh, you slam your fist and you shut the door, you've kind of lost control of your faculties, right? That's what you do when you're two or 13. You don't do it when you're you know, 27, or at least you should, but you, there's a, some of you don't, or 37 or 47, right? We can keep going if I included everybody. But at some point you recognize that, that, that every circumstance doesn't want, warrant you losing your mind because there's a stability, there's a foundation that you have, and it's stability. Stability is a sense of security that we have, that there's a foundation. And, and the way I, I define this in my notes and for my own personal world is stability is finding peace and security 
that, that is derived from my faith in Christ that is sufficient for any circumstance. Stability. There is no circumstance that can thwart or, or undermine that foundation. And can I tell you that I've been through every circumstance? No, I can't. Has it been hard and at times I felt like it was coming out from under me? Of course it has. But the point is you continue to find and mine and derive that from this relationship that I have that enables me to land on it. So we talked about last week, right? There's got to be a, something underneath you. So that's, that's, that's the picture of this. So um, with that, you know, what most of us have is this view of the gospel that has been primarily a message about the afterlife. If you were to die today, do you know where you would go? And my own journey in this, my own journey in this is much different. And it doesn't mean that's not true. It has tremendous bearing on it. To be separated from God and the trajectory of that until its finality is a serious thing. But the gospel isn't just about what happens if you die. It's what happens if you live. If you wake up tomorrow, is there something in you that compels you to participate and to live in this redeemed way in which you have been, what we all have said to us, we've been reconciled. So what does that mean for our lives? How do we get a vision for this? That's what we're talking about. So I want us to read this. John chapter 3, verse 16. Some of you might be familiar with this. And you'll feel really good about yourself, like your spiritual mature, because you've memorized this. That's a good thing. For God so loved the world, y'all have all heard this probably, right? That he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life or eternal life. I think it's, it's that, that should be redeemed or restored to this uncreated life for which we have originally been intended. That, that is the language. In the beginning, that's how John begins his gospel. That's, that's a part. And most of us have a view or a picture of what that verse means. We should not perish, which means when we die, this won't happen, but when we die, something else will happen, and I think it's more than that. He goes on, he says this, for the God did not send his son into the world, this is verse 17, which you should always memorize things in couplings, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, his point was never to condemn the world, but to do what? But to provide an opportunity that what? The world might be saved through him. The question is saved from what? Because all of us have a picture, a view, a vision. We talked about this last week, that what happens in separation, sin separates us from the source. There's an unreconciled way in which we live, and now we live under a different rule. And that undermines what we have been intended for, the life that God has, the rule of God's love, the way in which we are loved by him and find life in that. And it, it, it erodes. And what we are separated from is that source. So what he is saving us from is the way of life that forces us to manipulate or to control or to be attention-seeking, to always take from other people. He is saving us from that way of life that in its trajectory ends in, in a place you do not want, in a state in which you do not want to be. The trajectory of that way of life is death. So that's, that's the picture, and I want to get, want to get, sort of get a better vision for this. When I, years ago, and I've put this up there, and we said this a bunch, but when I talk about the gospel, 
I needed some language for it, so I wrote this definition that the gospel is the good news, because that's really what it means, the good news. We'll put this on the screen so you can have this. You might want to chew on it, mine it, and just think about it. But the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. To do two things. And I got this from reading the Bible. From reading the Bible. When you read the Bible, you'll realize the primary way the gospel was communicated in the New Testament was not as a message about what happens to you when you die, but about an available rule that has been brought to us and made available to us in Christ, in Christ. So there's two things that he does very clearly, because he says, I did not come to save, uh, I mean, to to." Uh, to take care of the righteous, but to save sinners. He says this very clearly. So number one is Jesus came to save sinners. And number two, he came to establish his kingdom, his rule, his way of authority. So how does he save sinners? We've talked about this. He saves sinners by forgiving us. It is his forgiveness that saves us. And most of us have a picture that says we've sinned and Jesus erases it. See, like unlike this, if you mark this, you can't erase it. You're just stuck. So the gospel somehow makes this go away without any blemish. And I can't do that here because it'll never work. But we think of it as like if we have a sin, we confess it and God erases it. And it's always transactional. But what helped me is to begin to think and to take my sin seriously, to consider the weight of my sin and what the trajectory of my sin, whether it's, 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 whether it's a, a big one or a really, really small one, the trajectory of them is always in a, um, a way from the life that I've been created for. And when I take that seriously, I began to recognize there's a beauty in forgiveness. And this isn't because I heard a message about it. This is because I've chewed on it and consider it and say, God, can you show me this? And that's what, that's what I'm inviting you into. This isn't about hearing and liking a message. Or, it's about us entering into something and saying, God, can you show us this? That forgiveness is actually restorative. Forgiveness takes us from the state in which we were in and reconciles us and redeems us and restores us into the image in which we have been created. That we now bear the righteousness of God and our identity is rooted in Him. It's, it's restorative. And then the bigger thing is, I think this is what's where I want to go today, is that, that forgiveness isn't just transactional. It, just doesn't, it doesn't just erase your sin, but rather it is deeply redemptive. And that's a, that's, a, that's a category that a lot of us don't have. It's deeply redemptive. And I'm using language that, that we have heard but are probably not familiar with in the way that I'm using it on purpose, because I, want, I don't want us to overlay what we already think about this. <clears throat> the, the summation sentence, and this will be on your screen, is basically in forgiveness, or as those who've been forgiven, those of us who've been saved, who have trusted Christ, who've been returned to his rule, we are reconciled to the relationship for which we have been created, namely with God the Father, and therein is the hope for every other relationship to be reconciled. There is no other order. This relationship first, and then everyone's, because this one was the one that was broken that broke all the rest of them. That, that's where we've been the last few weeks. So that's the, that's the picture that I want us 
to start with and then start to ask you some questions. So how do you operate in the world? How do you get up in the morning and think about your day and your week and your meetings and your kids and your marriage and your money? How do you wake up in the day? Am I grumpy when you wake up? Do you wake up, you know, just like all these things? How, how are you navigating this? What is, what is the effect of the world and what's happening around the world on our lives, on our souls, on our hearts? How can we sort of find a way to enjoy even while we address or deal with things that are so difficult and so hard and so undermining to that joy. When I think about this, and the way I titled this final kind of installment of this series is it's beyond brokenness. I want us to see beyond brokenness, not to ignore it or to minimize it, but to see beyond it. And it's the idea that there is something that is available to us beyond the immediate emotion we feel and beyond the immediate experience that we are having. And so we turn to Philippians 2. And this is an incredible letter. Paul is writing a letter uh, to people that he loves, to a group of people he loves, and he's writing them from prison. Paul has been put in jail because of his faith and because of preaching, uh, proclaiming the faith, and because of the way in which he's, I mean, he's just created a lot of chaos because he's preaching there's another ruler other than Caesar, which gets you in big trouble in first century Rome. So Paul is in jail and he's writing this. And Eugene Peterson, my mother-in-law gave me a devotion uh, by Eugene Peterson. It just walks you through the whole Bible. It's, it's actually beautifully written. And he writes the introduction to Philippians and he says this. This is what I want us to see. Because he talks about this idea of being in Christ. And when we read that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There's a picture that we live in Christ. And what he says, this is Eugene Peterson. He says, this life that we have been brought into did not only happen at a certain point in history, right? It wasn't just that Jesus lived in 33, in the first century Palestine, but continues to happen. This life continues to happen. Spilling out into our lives, into the lives of those who receive him, and then continues to spill out all over the place. It's a beautiful picture that, that Christ's life is poured out of us from him into our lives and then it spills out into the world all over the place. It just goes everywhere. Um, it's like when you spill your coffee in your car, you think it's a little cup and it's like everywhere. It's like it just goes everywhere. And so this is what Paul says and he starts the second chapter. He says, I want you to have this same mind which is in Christ Jesus. Don't consider yourselves more important than you are, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. And then he says this, although Jesus Christ was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he became obedient, even as a servant, even obedient to death on a cross, so that God would then exalt him in his name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, you've probably heard this part, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, both on the earth and under the earth. Confess what? Anybody know? Jesus Christ is Lord. It is fundamentally a rule and an authority confession. It isn't God can give me a little fire insurance. It is fundamentally a rule confession. Jesus is Lord. 
Now look at this. This is the next part. Therefore, because of that, my beloved, as you have always, and so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, I'm in jail, I can't be with you. So even more so that I'm not with you and I can't coach you in the same way that I was. What does he say to do? To work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Now, depending on how you grew up listening to the gospel, you have a picture in your head. For some of you, it just makes you feel guilty all over again. Fear and trembling. It's like you don't do enough. You don't, you know, you're just now you're feeling guilty. That's not what he's talking about. I love surfing. Many of you know this. And I, I follow um, most of my Instagram reels are like surfing videos or BMX videos. And now I'm getting a lot of Michael Jackson uh, dancing videos, which I don't know where those came from, but I'm getting a lot of those. Algorithms is kind of interesting, but I like them. They're good. I'm like smooth criminals. Like, dude, this is so good. And, um, <clears throat> but there's a lot of surfing videos. And one of the guys that I follow is a guy named Kai Lenny. And Kai Lenny is a big wave surfer. He surfs in you know, Portugal and Jaws and Hawaii. Big, big, huge waves, like 100 foot waves. And there's a documentary called The Life of Kai, and it talks about his experience. It's fascinating to watch these guys. Even if you don't love surfing, it's just insane. The preparation, the mental preparation, because every time they go, these aren't waves that you're just like going to casually fall off of and get back up. You die. you got to get rescued by a jet ski. Pull. I mean, it's, 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 it's high-stakes surfing. And the preparation, and he's been doing this, and he, he does it, and it looks like it, it, it looks easy. Like the way, it's, just, it's unbelievable. And they were interviewing, and he said this. He said, I've been doing this for 12 years, and I am only beginning to sense a level of comfort to something that I've dreamed of doing my whole life. And I think that's kind of the picture. You talk to anyone, that there is a sin. You might say that he goes out there with, and he works out his preparation with fear and trembling, knowing that the stakes are high and that it's serious. And I think that's what Paul's saying. He says, work out your own salvation, yours. What do you believe? Like, what do you believe about being forgiven? What do you believe about Jesus saving you? What do you believe about his rule? What do you believe about his authority? He says, work this out with fear and trembling. Take this really, really seriously. You realize that what you believe has very serious consequences to how you live your life. Do you realize that? It doesn't matter whether you're talking about the gospel or you're talking about what you believe about money or sex or relationships or anything else. What you believe has serious implications on the way in which you interface with the world around you. How well you treat others, what you deal, you know, how you deal with others and circumstances. If you think that it's just all about, hey man, just get my next thrill and it leads to one thing to the next, it has serious implications on you. If you believe that certain things physically are a piece of cake, it has implications on you. All these things, and it's all, so what Paul is saying, this is no different, he's just saying, hey, work out your own salvation, what you believe about the gospel, and do so, and take it really seriously. Here's why. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure, or his purpose. Oh, I gotta speed up. Do all things, this, this is, this will be just, worth the price today. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. We'll just let that sit up there for a second. Do all things except politics without grumbling. or Do all things except, you know, your home life. Do all things except school, right? No, it's just do everything. 
Work out your own salvation, for God is doing something in you. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's an effect to your life, to what you do, to what you bring. And he doesn't say that you're going to make the crooked and twisted generation less crooked and twisted. He said you need to be different in the middle of it. I want to hold that thought for just a minute. He goes on, we don't have time to get into this, but holding fast to the word of life. So in the day of Christ, I will be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Why? Because that somehow what I continued continues on in the lives of other people. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering, uh, of sacrificial offering of your faith. Even if what I give of myself ends my life and only benefits you, it is my joy to do so. Paul says, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And he says, and likewise, don't feel bad for me. I want you to be glad with me as well, that there's something that is happening here. And y'all, this is the vision that we need. Make no mistake about it, to work this out requires effort. You know, the reason I pick a word is because I realized long ago that the normal, natural direction of my life does not lead me into the kind of spiritual formation that I desire, and I assume that yours doesn't either. When you wake up in the morning, and you get up, and you get breakfast, and you get your kids up, or you get up, and you try to figure out what your day is going to be like, or you get up, and you get ready to go to school, whatever it is, like, and then you get to you know, school or work, wherever it is you go, I assume it doesn't likely lead you to love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, does it? And maybe it does. Most of it, it leads to grumbling, and disputing, and punching someone in the throat, right? That's what it leads to. And so we got to have a different way We've got to be reoriented to a different rule. And he says, as we do this, right, his purposes get worked out in us. What is his purpose? You know, I've thought about this for a long time because most of us think that his purpose is to fix and to solve problems. I look around and go, he ain't doing a very good job. We need a category that just as this happens in forgiveness, the establishment of his rule in your head, in your heart, with your hands and your feet, begins to act redemptively on the world around us. And redemption is not that things are fixed. Redemption is that even if things aren't fixed, there's always something working underneath, that God is relentless in his purposes to restore and reconcile all things to himself. And that is always happening. And so what does he use? He says this in this passage. He says that we become, and I think we use this blameless and innocent, it's a reference back to the garden, the way we were intended to be made. This is, what, this is what is evidence when we are returned to the way of life for which we've been intended. And then we act faithfully and step faithfully into, the, faithfully into those places, and we bring redemption, we bring redemptive activity into the world in which we live. The thing for me, and this has changed me, the, the, the idea of a kingdom mindset of developing a kingdom is 
Saving sinners and establishing rules, rule, uh, his rule has changed the way in which I get up in the morning. It's changed my motivation for governing my behavior and governing my thoughts and trying to live in a way that would honor and be faithful to him and then serve to be faithful to the relationships in which I've been entrusted with. Because it's very easy to take things into your own advantage. Even the position that I hold here at the church, and there are a lot of you know, people who take advantage of it. I try to say, God, can you help me more and more and more to learn how to give of myself because of what you've entrusted to me? And the reason isn't so that God won't be mad at me or even that God will be pleased with me. I actually believe that when I act faithfully, particularly in the smallest of moments, there's an effect, a redemptive effect that God, it is God who wills and works in those places. And he uses us to bring that. Most people have grown up thinking that if it's only an afterlife message, the only thing you ever hear is what do you do for the church? Well, you be faithful and show up and you give some money and then good luck at work. And I'm telling you, when you go to work, when you go home, when you drive in traffic, when you go to a restaurant, every time you bring this, your life to bear, you're doing something, you're acting and God is using it. That your work is sacred. Your responsibilities in your personal life are sacred. They have purpose and they, are, they are act redemptively. As you are formed, you, your life acts redemptively on the world around us. You've got to work this out. Redemption is, is not this neat jigsaw puzzle kind of thing, but it kind of grinds through history with stalls and starts, right? Sometimes the promise of God's redemption is so unbelievably deniable and other times it's barely recognizable. You're like, what in the world is God doing? And the challenge of redemption is belief because redemption rarely acts in ways that you and I can calculate and certainly not in ways that we can control. And the worst part, see, there's, when you talk about a vision for our lives, there's plenty of fuel for a vision for your life to escape or to get out of the rat race or to do your own thing, to withdraw, to create and build your own kingdom and then ensure your own comfort and then protect your tribe within that comfort. There's plenty of room to do that. But if you want to find God's redemption, it happens in the messy places, in the places where there are loose ends. I am very fortunate to have, you know, my wife as uh, a guardian of light and works in the foster care system. My kids, uh, which I don't know how in the world they got this, but they like do stuff with, you know, they work in, in all kinds of places. They've kind of drug me in there as well. And our church has been a part of this. But you get into these places and you see the mess. And you don't just sit around and theoretically talk about the problems in our culture of violence or poverty or homelessness or foster kids and all that they go through. Or th- you, you actually know people and names and stories and it changes you. I was with Tom Dalton. He runs Eden Village. He said, once you see this, you can't unsee it. Once you understand what we've been commissioned to do to bring redemptive, you know, to bring redemptive force to the world around us and the way we give and love, right? It changes you. And here's what you need. You need a vision for the gospel that is compelling enough, not big enough, compelling enough for the sacrifice that it requires. Most of us have got this big vision for God I'm telling you what I want is I want to be compelled to be so faithful in the smallest things in front of me because that's where 
I think the kingdom just gets, gets pushed. A lot of us grew up being told we were going to change the world. Some of you told this to your kids. You're going to be a world changer. Talk about pressure. Here's what happens to us. I was 20 years old. I wanted to change the world. I worked for like 10 or 15 years ago. The world ain't changed. Again, it ain't any different. I'm done with this. I need something else. You don't need to change the world. What you need to learn how to do is follow Jesus' bend culture. You bend it. And you bend it by being the kind of person who bears God's image with a sense of fidelity and integrity. And you bring the influence of his love such that God uses that to act redemptively on whatever circumstance or situation you find yourself in. We need a vision for this. So here's how I want to close. To bend the culture happens in all the little things that you and I do. Don't underestimate them. Don't overlook them. This is how you learn how to live beyond the broken world. So this prayer is, again, modified from the personal retreat. And um, tomorrow's your last day to do it. And so if you haven't done it, I don't really know what I'm going to do. Nothing. <laughs> Just do it. Here's the prayer. This is what I want for us to, to, to drink in. Father, I ask for vision. Give me faith to trust your lead more so than my own experience. And man, if we've been alive for a long time, whew, let me trust your lead more than my own experience. My vision for the future is so easily clouded by my past. I can tend to write a story before it even unfolds, trusting my perspective before I ever consider yours. But the unfolding of your will comes with sufficient grace that requires fresh faith there's a newness of your revelation that is met with new morning mercies. God, would you be so kind as to meet me and to show me and to guide me? Here are my hopes and my dreams and my plans surrendered to you. Not my will, but yours, O oh Lord, here on earth as it is in heaven. Would you help me to see and to articulate what I see? Would you reveal and refine in order that I may know more of you? And may our deepening relationship result in a deepening dependence. May our deepening relationship result in a deepening dependence such that your vision for redemption is reflected a little bit more in my life. Father, would you give us vision, not grand, sweeping, change the world vision, but a compelling vision that allows us to be faithful in the moment. It allows us to be sensitive to you in the moment. It allows you to pay attention to the people around us in the moment. God, we show up and give ourselves away. And in doing so, 
find the life for which we have been created. God, would you give us vision for that? And ask all of this in the name of your son Jesus, who is our king. Amen.